0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today from the studios of WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina, is author Wiley Cash, the author of The Last Ballad, which last year was the winner of the Southern Book Prize for Literary Fiction. And so, Wiley, welcome to the Journal. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Wiley, our listeners always like to know a little bit about our guests. You went to school in Louisiana. You live in Wilmington. You're on the faculty at UNC Asheville. Where
1: are you from? Originally, I'm from Gastonia, North Carolina, which is where The Last Ballad, the novel that you mentioned in the intro, is set. I was, was raised there and then I went to school uh, in North Carolina, graduated from public universities here in uh, the Old North State, and then I left in 2003 and went to graduate school at the University of Louisiana. And I went down there for two reasons. I wanted to go as far into the geographic south as I could, and Louisiana felt like the best place to do that. And I wanted to study fiction writing under Ernest J. Gaines, who was my literary hero and still is. He is my, I feel like I'm a direct descendant of his of his power and his aesthetic and his craft. And so I really went down there to, to sit at his feet and to learn to be a writer. And from there, I taught um, for a few years at a small liberal arts college in West Virginia. And my wife took a job practicing here in North Carolina. We're both North Carolina natives and we came home to North Carolina in 2014. And UNC Asheville hired me to be writer in residence and my first semester there was the fall of 2016. So it's a bit of a mess. I'm I'm back and forth across the state uh, several times uh, a month teaching there. I'm teaching a night class this fall. I'm teaching a fiction writing workshop on Monday evenings. But we're living here full time in, in Wilmington and. Just thankful to be in North Carolina and
0: thankful to be working at a great university and living in a place we love. The commute from Wilmington to Asheville. I hope you got a good book on tape or lots of NPR stations to listen to on the the way across
1: that yeah i 'm I'm, I'm very fortunate that NPR picks up pretty consistently across the entire state of North Carolina, so if they can stagger their show times uh, in a way that suits me, I will never hear any repeats but i 'm so used to making that drive and I get to pass right through Gastonia and have lunch at my favorite little places that I miss and so i 'm actually looking forward to having some time in the car to clear my head
0: Well, the last ballad is not your first novel it 's it's, it's your third I believe i found it riveting and Authors sometimes say, well, blurbs don't make any difference. Well, when this came to the station, I saw you had a blurb by Ron Rash, and I said, if Ron Rash likes this book, I gotta read it.
1: Yeah, Ron is a, is a wonderful writer, and he's one of those people, along with Charles Frazier and Lee Smith and Silas House, who, who really rolled out a landscape for me that didn't quite exist. Uh, to the degree it exists before they came along. If it weren't for books like Fair and Tender Ladies and Cold Mountain and Serena, I wouldn't have a career because I'm not the talent that these these people are. And they really chipped a place through the rock, through the mountain, for, for people like me to follow behind them.
0: Uh, don't denigrate yourself. <laughs> okay? All right. You, you are a Gastonia boy. One of the things... I've learned for 40 years of teaching Southern history, as towns have collective memories, they also have collective amnesia. Did you hear about the Gastonia strike when you were growing up?
1: No, I never heard a word about the Loray strike in 1929. I never heard the name Ella Mae Wiggins, neither had my parents. My dad is from a little town called Shelby, about 30 minutes to the west of Gastonia. My mom's born and raised in Gastonia, and they both came from mill villages and they had never heard of the Lorry strike or the name Ella May Wiggins.
0: Did you find that astonishing once you started your work?
1: Yes and no. You know, the Lorry strike was a communist-led mill strike. It resulted in two people being murdered. It resulted in great strife between the haves and the have-nots in the city. There was an attempt to integrate the Union and integrate the workforce. The Union was led by New York union leaders, uh, communists affiliated with the American Communist Party. So it was a very divisive time in in the history of, of Gaston County and the history of North Carolina. It was followed by the general textile strike in 1934, which also rocked Gastonia and rocked many southern textile mills and, and many, many places around the country, many employers around the country. And so it was a tense moment. And then, you know, once, Lo- once the Loray strike ends, effectively in the summer of 1929, the whole entire nation is swept up in the Great Depression, which lasted for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so the strike was divisive, then it was buried by history. And then once the dust settled, Loray actually sold the mill to Firestone in 1935. And that really erased the history of the strike. It erased the name of LMA Wiggins. It, it erased the name of Loray, literally, because they took the, the name Loray off of everything. Um, and so I wasn't so surprised that I didn't know it. You know, people and in cities and cultures and in towns have a way of swallowing things they don't want people to know about, mm-hmm. even when you're from there. And, and and Wilmington has that history. A lot of a lot of these sleepy southern towns have those histories, and, and Gastonia does.
0: Well, you're true. A lot of southern towns do, but that I don't think that's peculiar just to the south. But that's why I asked you about collective memory and connect collective amnesia because especially unpleasantness, disappears?
1: Sure, you know, and I think Southerners, by and large, we are a people who don't like to be uncomfortable. We are people who don't like to make other people uncomfortable. We don't like to share divisive ideas or to appear divisive or to appear unsettling. And so often it's easier just not to talk about something. And I think that a lot of times that's where privilege waits for us to be discovered. You know, I could have gone my entire life without talking about the Laurier Mill strike. Right. I didn't have a vested interest. Um, Generations of my family were not grounded in the poverty that resulted from that strike or from the needs that were not met during that strike. And I could have gone my entire life not talking about that. My wife, who's from Wilmington, could go her entire life without talking about the Wilmington coup in 1898 because it didn't affect her directly. It affects her indirectly, but her family's history and her family's economic present and past are not tied to that. But there are a lot of people in both communities whose ancestry and whose um, forebearers are grounded in, in those events, that they don't get to live their lives not talking about these things and not thinking about these things and not being affected by these things.
0: I want to set a little bit of a historical background to the Lorraine strike, and this actually would apply to the textile industry in, in both Carolinas, where the textile industry had boomed around World War One and expanded actually in in the nineteen twenties. But by nineteen twenty seven, the textile industry was really beginning to to teeter. It was this is before the Great Depression, but they had all gone into overproduction with World War One and expanded mills, and What was happening in some places as it happened in Bessemer City, where L.M.A. Wiggins first worked, northerners bought the mills, outsiders, they brought in efficiency experts, and they recommended putting in the stretch-out system. For our listeners out there, that means turning the machinery up as fast as you can, and workers were given a greater number of machines to tend, whether it's the loom or the bobbins or or what have you. And this led to labor unrest in both Carolinas in 1928 and 29. And believe it or not, in 1929, the General Assembly of South Carolina appointed a special committee to investigate textile workers' grievances. And the committee concluded that the strikes that had been happening in South Carolina were due to the deplorable living conditions in the villages and the so-called efficiency measures that put more work on the employees than they can do. It also absolved the unions in South Carolina of any complicity in the strikes. So that was a nice report, but nothing happened. This idea of the stretch out, putting more on the workers than was feasibly possible, was the situation in North Carolina as well. Yes,
1: absolutely. It's, it's exactly what you just said. The demand for cotton cloth boomed during World War I, 1916 to 1920. And these mill owners and, and mill managers sent barkers up into the hills of North Carolina and South Carolina, North Georgia, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, East Tennessee, and onto the farms in places like the upstate where these sharecroppers and tenant farmers were living. And they said, come to the mill. We'll give you a job we'll give you a school, we'll give you a house, we'll give you a store, we'll give you a church. All you have to do is get there and all of your dreams will be will be waiting for you. All of your desires will be met. And so there, were, there was a huge migration of people down from the hills, down from the mountains, and then from the farms. And they settled in places like Spartanburg, Greenville, Columbia, Gastonia, Bessemer City, Charlotte. And what happened was unemployment skyrocketed, especially when the war ended. Uh, people say uh, necklines plunged and skirts got higher, suits got tighter, and the demand for cloth waned dramatically. And so there were great layoffs. And when, when when unemployment skyrockets, wages fall. But the mills were able to mechanize themselves. They were able to rely on industry. They were able to rely on technology. And they were never – the, the profits of the mills were never greatly affected. Many mills, Lori included – were actually able to turn a greater profit during this time, because they laid off so many people, and conditions in the mill villages were deplorable. There were open sewers, there were no bathtubs, there were no indoor bathrooms, there was no plumbing. It was in, in 1934, mill managers and, and, and preachers in Gastonia were preaching, you know, it's, it's holy to take a bath only once a week. It's not holy to clean yourself more than once a week. And so it was a really, really awful time. I had no idea about the investigation and the and the uh, the publications in South Carolina, but that, that's really interesting to hear. Uh, another novel that does a great job of exploring those conditions in South Carolina is a novel by my friend John Lane called Fate Moreland's Widow, which talks about a mill strike in the South Carolina upstate around that time.
0: And there were earlier novels written about the Gastonia strike. Grace Lumpkin, who is a South Carolinian, or was a South Carolinian, she's now deceased. And uh, my colleague, Henry Lumpkin, wonderful guy, used to refer to Grace as his commie aunt. And she was. She was actually representing the Communist Party in Gastonia during the textile strike.
1: She was, yes. She was She was a very interesting woman and, and a very powerful woman. A lot has been written about her, but what's so amazing is how her politics and her outlook changed as she as she grew into her later years, especially after the 1950s and into the 1960s, how she turned against her earlier beliefs because the political winds blew so strong. And there were several there were several novels written uh about and inspired by the Gastonia strike, but a lot of these novels were um allegorical novels, they were big idea novels, they were problem novels. They were novels in which labor is the answer, the mill owner is, is the enemy, and, and organizing is the fix. And they're didactic novels, they're, they're easy answer novels. And those fell out of favor in, in the 50s, in the 60s. And I knew that if I wrote a novel like that, if I wrote a proletariat novel, that it would be dismissed as being an easy answer novel. And the strike was much more complicated than that. It was much more complicated than labor having all the answers and and the mill owners uh, issuing all of the problems. And I wanted to write a novel that felt real and actual and, and a novel that doesn't have any answers or any easy fixes
0: in it. Well, I'll just say one more thing about Grace because you're absolutely right. The ideology in To Make My Bread was was Marxist through and through. In fact, it won the Gorky Prize. Uh, <laughs> for literature.
1: Aspirations.
0: <laughs> um but you uncovered a heroine in Ella Mae Wiggins. Let's talk about her for a minute because her story is I found absolutely fascinating.
1: Yes, so um Ella May, both in my novel and in real life, was born in nineteen hundred in East Tennessee. She was born to a father who was a tenant farmer and What's happening at the time in the early 20th century is the cash economy is coming into the Appalachian Mountains. People need cash money. There's no longer the opportunity to barter and trade. We see stores coming in. If you've read Charles Frazier's novel, Thirteen Moons, the main character uh, starts, start, owns a store, starts working in a store and owns a star, store, and we see the outset of the cash economy. And so you didn't make a lot of money as a tenant farmer. You didn't have access to a lot of cash. And so these men and these families moved into the lumber camps because the lumber camps paid cash money. And if you've read Ron Rash's novel, Serena, you have an idea of what life was like in the lumber camps. And so Ella grew up in a lumber camp. Her father was a sawyer. She and her mother took in laundry. They, they cleaned the, the sap and the sweat from the sawyer's clothes. And she fell for a man named John Wiggins, who was a, kind of a no-good roustabout. And he convinced her, he listened to these barkers coming up from the Piedmont and from the South Carolina upstate. And he listened to them and he said, Ella, let's go down to the mills. That's where our, that's where our dreams and our, and our hopes are waiting to be met. And so when Ella was about 16, she left the mountains and ended up in Cowpen, South Carolina with John and, and took a job at her first mill, which was the Cowpens Manufacturing Company. And that's where she gave birth to a few of her, her early children And she also worked on a farm down there, uh, worked agriculture on a farm. And so she left the mountains as a teenager, and she never went back. And I I imagine that she always regretted leaving the mountains. And the novel, I I spent a lot of time on her thinking about her decision to leave the
0: mountains and the difficulty she would have in ever returning. Wigand was not the first smooth talking devil that she fell for.
1: Yeah, she she was she was a tough woman. And she had a a series of people coming in and out of her life that tried to take advantage of her. And I tried to show that the union also, in some ways, took advantage of her. Um, You know, Ella didn't know anything about communism. She was wildly intelligent. Uh, History and research bear that out. But she didn't know anything about communism because she'd never had to. And so when she got swept up in this mill strike, there was a certain amount of uh, uh, advantage that the, the organizers were taking, taking of her. They, they chose her because she could sing. They chose her because she was fiery. They chose her because her story was full of tragedy. They chose her because she was well-spoken and she was interesting and she was funny. And they chose her because she was female. They also chose her because she lived in an African-American neighborhood and worked at an integrated mill. She literally checked all the boxes for the American Communist Party and for the local organizers. She could speak to women. She could perform. She was a mother. She was a single mother. And her friendships were made up of African-American relationships. And so she was kind of the ideal prototype of a striker who was gonna reach the largest possible audience. And she was also an outsider. She didn't work at Loray. She didn't live in Gastonia. She worked seven miles to the west in Bessemer City. And so she showed that the message of the strike at Loray had spread to other mills. And so just as she was taken advantage of by John Wiggins and later by her boyfriend, Charlie Shope, and by mill owners, she was also taken advantage of by the organizers, the union organizers. And she wasn't taken advantage of because she was weak or because she wasn't intelligent. She was taken advantage of because she was
0: desperate. That was one thing that comes across very clearly. When the Union organizers come down here, to come down to Gastonia, they don't really understand the South.
1: No, they don't. It takes them a while to catch up. Uh, the, the, the people in the novel, Fred Beale, the, he was a real person. He was an organizer from New Bedford, Connecticut. He had led a strike in Connecticut. He had been part of the Passaic strike. He was a young man. He was impressionable. He was hopeful. He was not always as honest or as clear as he should have or could have been. And he didn't quite understand the South. He showed up on New Year's Day in 1929, looking for a mill to organize in the South because he knew that tensions were rising. He knew that Northern owners had purchased mills. Loray was started by local investors in 1900, and it was purchased by a Rhode Island company in 1916. And Northern practices were instituted. They built a fence around the mill, they instituted the stretch out. They made it um, against the rules to leave during your breaks on the night shift to go home and check on your children. And so these were practices that Southern mill workers and people from Appalachia weren't familiar with, and they were bucking against these Northern mill owners. And so the National Textile Workers Union saw an opportunity to come down and organize Southern mills. And when Fred Beale came down on New Year's Day in 1929, he began sniffing around, Charlotte, Gastonia, uh, counties to the west, counties a little bit farther to the north, Lincoln County and Marion. And people told him, Loree is the largest mill in the state, and if you can organize Loree, you can organize the entire South. And that's why he set his sights on Loree. But he never quite understood it. He never understood that these people from Appalachia were fiercely individualistic. He didn't understand that men were not going to march on the picket line without weapons. He didn't understand that. He didn't understand their refusal to integrate. He was from a completely different environment, a completely di- different atmosphere, being from New England and working in the mills there. He didn't understand what quite what he was getting into.
0: That's true, and and his uh, female companion Sophia uh, was was a li- was a little bit better, but I found. Yes, he did use LMA. I also felt a lot of times he was just really talking down to her. Was it because she was a woman? Was it because she was Southern? Am I misreading that?
1: No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, I think that some of these biases are implicit, especially at the time, nineteen twenty nine. It was a rare thing for a single mother to have as many children as she did. It was a rare thing for a single mother to be the breadwinner. It was a rare thing for a single white woman to live in an African-American community and have those people watch her children, to have her watch their children to live this way. And so I think when Fred Beale met Ella May, he saw a 28-year-old woman who was near death from starvation, a woman who had her hands full with children, a woman who was working 72 hours a week in a cotton mill for $9. And he saw a woman who was at the end of a rope, who had nowhere else to turn. And it's not that Fred Bill was evil, but I think that gender bias uh, certainly played a role in his treatment of her and his belief that she would do certain things in the name of the union or wouldn't do certain things in the name of the union. But I think a lot of it was class-based as well. He probably had never met someone as poor as Ella May. He had probably never met someone who spoke like Ella May. And she was aware of that. Ella was absolutely aware of, of the risk of seeming country of seeming backward, of seeming ignorant to these people. You know, she meets Sophia Blevin, who's 18 years old. She's from Pittsburgh. She's a she's an organizer with the party. And Ella is terrified of seeming country in front of this woman who's ten years younger than she is and hasn't lived half the life that Ella has and hasn't overcome half the challenges that Ella has. But because of her regional identity, because of the way she speaks, because of the way she was raised or the things she was raised believing, she's terrified of appearing backward. And so I think a lot of bias comes from region, comes from class, comes from gender, and I think all of those things were at
0: play for Ella. Ella May is working in an integrated mill. That's one thing that piqued my interest because, for example, in South Carolina, it was illegal for the mill force to be integrated. The only place African-Americans could work was at the dock unloading cotton bales.
1: Yes, it wasn't illegal in North Carolina. Um, but they were relegated in most mills to doing uh, machine work, to doing custodial work. As you said, the opening room was a very dangerous place to work. That was predominantly uh, the work of African-American males. But Ella worked in a mill called American Mill Number no. 2. It was an integrated mill in Bessemer City. It was owned by two brothers, the Goldberg brothers, who were Jewish. They were from Latvia. They fled Latvia after the Russian invasion found their way to North Carolina and got involved in the textile business. And they were outsiders. They didn't fit in with the white American Protestant mill owners and they were Jewish. And so in many ways, the Goldbergs were treated like second-class citizens. It was expected that they would pay their employees less than the white Protestant mill owners paid their employees. It was expected that they would Uh, work with and buy the lowest grade cotton and therefore sell an inferior product, which they had to do. And because they paid worse than any other mill in the area, white people who could afford not to refused to work for them. Well, Ella wasn't one of those white people. Ella had been through a series of jobs in mills in Gaston County in the South Carolina upstate. She had a habit of speaking her mind. She had a number of children she had to care for, especially after her husband abandoned her. So she was a single mother. And so she really was forced to take what work she could find for the pay she could find. And by the time she lands at American Mill No. 2, working 72 hours on the night shift, six nights a week for $9, this is her last chance. This is the last job she can get. This is her last hope to keep her
0: and her children alive. nine dollars a week figures to be twelve and a half cents an hour
1: yeah it's startling when we hear that now I mean even even when skewed out for inflation it's startling to hear that now
0: right now the minimum wage in South Carolina and North Carolina is seven dollars and 25 cents an hour if you convert that back to 1929 that would have been 50 cents an hour so yeah that's four times what LMA was getting yeah yeah it's amazing you talked about what these outside owners, not just the Goldbergs but the ones at, at Luray, didn't let the women workers check on their children. In fact, Ella May had tried, she was on the night shift, she tried to get sh- to, the, to the day shift so she could be at home with her children at night, and it was consistently denied by the superintendent of the mill.
1: Yes, she didn't have the, protection, uh, the protections that, that are afforded today. She also didn't have the mobility within her job to make these kinds of demands. The unions weren't in effect. There weren't um, holidays granted by law. And so Ella was really stuck in an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an impossible position to both care for her children and to
0: earn a living wage to, to keep them alive. And as you pointed out, it was barely a living wage. Uh Yes,
1: she was literally she, you know, we have a myth about uh, the working poor in America, both then and now. We have this myth that if people just work hard enough that they can they can take part in the American dream. Well, I believe that Ella was literally working herself to death. She was working so hard that she was near death. And even now we have people who are working so hard that they can't get time off to go to school. They can't get time off to apply for a better job. But they can't make enough money to pay for childcare. They can't make enough money to pay for an education. They can't get time off to go vote, to to, to perhaps you know better their lot with different, you know, legal safeguards or or, or safety nets. And so. This myth of the working poor, is, it certainly applies to Ella. She was working herself to death, and, and she had she had worked herself into a corner. And so when she hears about this strike at Loray, she gets a list of the union's demands. And the union is demanding things like a $20 minimum wage per week. Well, she earns nine. A uh, 40-hour work week. She works 72. Equal pay for equal work. And she knows there are men in the mill doing her job making more money than she's making. Luckily, we don't have that problem anymore, right? Um... And she's looking at this union's list of demands and she's, she's not imagining if these come true, I'll get a Cadillac and a condo in Myrtle Beach. What she's imagining is if these demands come true, maybe my kids won't die. Maybe I won't die because she's already lost one child to whooping cough,
0: And she knows that her, her, the end is near for her. All right, Wiley, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with novelist Wiley Cash about his award-winning novel, The Last Ballad. Okay, Ella hears about the union. She reads information. She begins to talk to her neighbors. Her best friend is an African-American woman. They're a little bit leery about whether or not to get involved at first.
1: Yes, absolutely. They're, They're leery to get involved because they know the score. They know how society, which is to say white society, which is to say a white union, white mill owners, white union members, views people who look like them. They know better than to think they can waltz into a union meeting with the same protections that Ella's skin color affords her. It doesn't afford them that kind of protection. And so their lot in life has made them understand the difficulties in navigating society that Ella doesn't quite have to deal with in the same way. And so they're skeptical of the union. They're afraid of losing their jobs and not being able to get more jobs. They're more cynical about the ideas of a labor revolution, for lack of a better term, than, than Ella is because they've, they've seen more of the underside of racism and classism and sexism than Ella has.
0: One of the things that, uh, as you said, Ella has, one of her talents is she has a gorgeous voice And her song, which it was her song, The Last Ballad, which was called The Mill Mother's Song, that's what she, she wrote at least three protest songs. And I I think I remember that, uh, in checking up, that Pete Seeger considers The Last Ballad really the first of the great protest songs of the 1920s and 1930s.
1: Yes. Pete Seeger actually recorded her song. Uh, she called it the Mill Mother's Song. It was later um, recast as the Mill Mother's Lament. He recorded that in the 1970s on an, on an album called Industrial Ballads. But Woody Guthrie was the first really nationally known, internationally known folk singer to embrace Ella May's writing. Woody Guthrie called her the greatest American protest songwriter of all time. And so here we have... The greatest folk singer of all time, greatest folk songwriter in American history, Woody Guthrie. One of the most prominent uh, performers and catalogers in Pete Seeger, praising this woman. And I grew up knowing nothing about her. Uh, She's from my hometown. She died in my hometown. Her last name was Wiggins. My mother's maiden name is Wiggins. My grandfather was 22 years old the summer that a woman who shared his last name made headlines in every major newspaper around the world he worked at a mill not far from where Ella worked he never mentioned her he never shared her name so history literally swallowed her up and buried the story and she was, she was a civil rights leader before we knew that term she was a feminist before that term was used and instead uh, she was erased
0: alright do you, do you have your book with you I do not. Uh, well... I did not think to bring it. That, I apologize. That, well, that's okay. If you will let me, I'm going to take two minutes and read the lyrics to The Mill Mother's Lament. We leave our homes in the morning, we kiss our children goodbye, while we slave for the bosses and our children scream and cry. And when we draw our money, our grocery bills to pay, not a cent to spend for clothing, not a cent to lay away. And on that very evening, our little son will say, I need some shoes, mother, and so does sister May. How it grieves the heart of a mother, you everyone must know. But we can't buy far our children, our wages are too low. It is for our little children that seem to us so dear. For us, nor them, dear workers, the bosses do not care. But understand, dear workers, our union they do fear. Let's stand together, workers, and have a union here. Now, she wasn't an ideologue, but there certainly is a Marxist tinge to to that song, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I think that as much as she didn't understand or know much about Marxism or communism, the her desires, her hopes, her desperation – perfectly aligns with many of the tenets of that movement. And so for her to be swept up in a communist-led mill strike was almost, in my mind, incidental to what she believed. Um, I think that had she known fully what she was getting into, she would still have done it. Uh, I think her desperation would have led her there. So I don't think history would have been, if she had gotten a primer on Marxism and communism before signing her name to the union card, that she would have made a different decision. But I do think that she wasn't quite as aware of the theories driving uh, the forces that she had become part of.
0: Now, Elamay became famous because at one union rally, she stood up and sang her song, and it captivated the audience. And then she became a regular feature. It was almost like a revival. And she was in the newspapers, her photographs were taken, and all of a sudden she realized that, yes, she had become a personality.
1: Yes. You know, in the novel, she decides on her day off to go to this union rally at the Loray strike, and she is picked up by two organizers. And en route to Gastonia, one of the organizers, an 18-year-old woman named Sophia Blevin, the woman I mentioned earlier from Pittsburgh, asks Ella, How did you end up here in the back of this truck with me going to a union rally? And so Ella tells her story, the story of being born in the mountains, of her parents dying, meeting John Wiggins, going down to the mills, losing her children, singing music, working in an integrated mill, her wage. Uh, and, And Sophia says, holy cow, you know, you've got that story and you can sing. You're just who we've been waiting for. And so that night they convince her at the conclusion of the rally to take the stage and tell her story and to sing a song she's written on the back of a union leaflet. And that song is Mill Mother's Lament. And it's it's written uh, to the tune of a ballad that everyone would have been familiar with at that time. And that's what Ella was doing. She was taking the melodies of popular songs and she was recasting them uh, with her own lyrics because she wanted her, her music to be familiar and she wanted it to be memorable. And her getting up and testifying and then singing is akin to religious practices in the south and in Appalachia. You get up and you tell your story of walking through the fire, how you've come through, the act of salvation, God moving upon your heart, and then you sing a song. uh, You do something else very emotional. And this is a pattern. This is a type of delivery. This is a call an altar call of sorts, support the union, give your life to Christ. It's kind of the same type of structuring of the message that people in the audience would have been familiar with. And the organizers knew that Ella was the per- kind of person to deliver that message. Fred Beale couldn't speak the way Ella spoke. Sophia Blevin could not speak the way that Ella spoke. Carlton Reed, who's an editor of the, the, the labor organizing magazine, could not speak the way that Ella spoke. They knew that. That's where Ella's power was. It was in delivering. It was in, it was in being in tune with the audience. It was in delivering a message that would resonate with them. And so this evening, when Ella delivers her story and sings this song, it makes her the face of the strike. And that makes her dangerous to the mills. And it also endangers her life. And of course, um, as the reader will learn very early in the novel, that decision has uh, horrifying consequences for Ella and her family
0: that are borne out throughout the novel. The organizers decide she's no longer be working in Bessemer City. They're going to pay her her, at least her weekly wage. They promise her that. Don't always come through. They ask her
1: about joining the union and becoming an
0: organizer
1: after she speaks. And she says, well, I don't know. Let me get back to Bessemer City and work my shift and think about it. And the organizers tell her, oh, you think you're going to go back to work? You think they don't know that you're here speaking at this rally? You think they don't know you've talked about them? You think they don't know that you've hung out with a bunch of union organizers? That job's not waiting for you when you go back. And Ella had no idea that that was going to be the case. And so she feels panicked. She feels taken advantage of. She feels scared. And she feels that she has to make a decision. And so she decides to begin organizing for the union. They agree to pay her at least her weekly salary to do that. And the union also offers food because that's, that's how they get people to come to the rallies. You can come to the union rally and you can get a meal. You can have a cup of coffee. It may be cold and it may be bitter, but we also have meat. We may get you a slice of bologna. We may get you a green vegetable. And that's something that's missing from many of these people's lives. And Ella says, if I can feed myself and my children and make some money, this is what I'm going to do.
0: This is what she decides to do. And she and others actually make a trip to Washington to try to deal with North Carolina senators.
1: And that's a true story. Ella took part in a group of strikers who went to Washington, D.C., and they attempted to meet with senators who were leading investigations into mill conditions in the South. And at one, at one point during that trip, during that day, they were in Washington. They encountered Senator Lee Overman, who was a senator from Salisbury, North Carolina, a long-serving senator. He was giving a tour to a group of college women from Greensboro, the, the teacher school in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And so they confront the senator and they demand he investigate and speak to and share his ideas and fix the issues facing children and working mothers in Southern textile mills. And he berates the strikers. He he, he he accuses them of being in costume. He tells a young girl who's 14 years old that she needs to get back in school. He tells them that they're too rough, that they're putting on, that this these these issues are overblown. And here he is with the well-coiffed, you know, cotillion set from North Carolina, these, these college-educated women who are horrified at the appearance of these strikers. And Ella steps in front of her group, and she says, how dare you say these things to us? How dare you tell this little girl to go to school? She can't afford to go to school. All she can afford is the clothes she has on. You have no idea what's going on in North Carolina, and it's time you do. I've always been so struck by the parallel of these women, these college-educated women encountering this band of, of, of rough-looking, desperate strikers. And, and how would they take Ella? And so in the novel, one of the, 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 the women being educated at the Women's College in Greensboro is the daughter of a mill owner in Gaston County. And it gives her a lot to think about. And she goes back home to, 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 to McAdamville, McAdamville, North Carolina, and gets involved in the strike. She and her family get involved in the strike in ways
0: that will hopefully surprise the reader, because it certainly surprises this family. The senator did not leave. In fact, all the government officials in, in North Carolina got involved. The mayor of Gastonia appealed to the governor for help. He sent several hundred National Guard troops, and they go into the Mill Village and begin to wreak their vengeance on those who are participating in the strike.
1: Yes. uh, When the strike was organized on uh, April Fool's Day, April 1st, 1929, the night shift walked out and began protesting. And the governor called in the National Guard to quell the protest. And incredible violence was done against the strikers, primarily women, because men refused to march on the picket line without weapons. And the union organizers told them, look, the police are looking for a reason to shoot you. If you have a gun, that's reason enough. So men refused to march. And so when the National Guard came in and these clashes broke out between strikers and guardsmen, the clashes were between women and children and people were injured. No one necessarily gravely, but people were seriously injured. And then as the strike wore on, the mill decided to evict people from their homes. Union members were evicted from their homes. And so the police were called in to oversee people being moved out of their homes violently, their stuff thrown in yards, their stuff broken, their furniture broken, their food spoiled. And violence occurred once again on the day that the the strikers were evicted. It was a very, very intense summer.
0: There was one scene, very graphic scene, where the boss man goes down to the village to tell everybody to shape up. They're already going to be shipped out. And he can't believe it when he is pelted with rotten vegetables, including a cabbage to the face, which I thought was a nice touch.
1: That was a fun scene to write. The, the man who comes down to the village is a man named Percy Epps. He's head of security at Loray. He's also an attorney. He's also the man in charge of hiring and I guess what we would now call human resources or H.R., He has a history of taking advantage of young women in the mill. He has a reputation for cruelty and indifference. And Ella, who has only recently joined the union that morning, she spoke at a rally the night before and has no ride back to Bessemer City and spends the night at the union headquarters, finds herself in the village while these people are being evicted. And just by a set of circumstances, she finds herself confronting Percy Epps. And he sees her and he says, I know who you are, I know where you work, and I know your name, and I know you sang last night, and I will never forget you. And of course he doesn't. And he demands all these people disperse who have gathered in the village to stop the evictions, to attempt to stop the evictions. And they begin pelting him with all of the food that has been thrown out of their homes that morning and all of their broken furniture and their their ruined yard implements and things like that. And so Percy Epps is forced to retreat. And that was a very satisfying and a very fun scene to write. But it was also a scene that I realized that Ella May had gotten herself in deep now. She she stared, she stared Percy Epps in the face. He knows her name. He knows who she is. He knows where she works. He knows her family. He knows her
0: story, and she has gotten herself past a point that she cannot return. Obviously, a very a very scary thing. Again, particularly for a single woman in North Carolina. Now, LMA keeps telling the organizers that if you want to organize African American workers. You can't speak to them. You need somebody who can speak to them. So Sophia has the idea of bringing a black organizer down to Gastonia.
1: Yes, they decide in a covert operation. Fred Beale knows it's a bad idea to try to integrate this union because these people from Appalachia and these local farmers are not going to march on the picket line beside African-American workers. They're just not going to do it. The novelist is set in a time where everyone, no matter who you are, no matter how poor you are, you need to feel like you're above somebody. And these desperate strikers, they need to feel like they're above somebody and that somebody is African-American workers and they're not going to march alongside them. But Ella says, look, if you want to shut down these mills and you want to swell the ranks of the union, you need to open yourself to black workers. And she knows she lives in an African-American community. That's who her friends are. She works in an integrated mill. That's her community. That's her primarily who all of her friends are are African-American workers, and she's the person to do it. And so she and Sophia create this covert plan to bring down an African-American organizer who's a Pullman porter and a union member from New York City. His name is Hampton Haywood. He also has a past in the South. He was born in Mississippi in the Delta, and his father shot and killed a white man who, who showed up on the on the front porch of their sharecropper's cabin one night to confront his father with a gun in his hand and the father knows what's about to happen and he shoots through the door and the family flees and heads north after a tragedy befalls them that that next morning and so Hampton is 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 south haunted he is haunted by the south he is haunted by racism and white supremacy but he wants to do his part for the party and for the union And so he agrees because he has this Southern backdrop, this Southern history, what little bit of it he can still lay claim to. He agrees at Sophia's request to come down and to serve as the African-American face in the African-American community to help to try to organize black workers. And when he gets there, he's very well dressed. He's uh, a very nice looking young man. He has a Northern sensibility. He has a New York slickness that is apparent, and Ella tells him, you can't show up in somebody's house looking like that and talking like that and I, acting
0: like that. Wiley, that's another one of my favorite scenes. She tells him he's gotta get dirty. She makes him roll up his sleeves. His fancy shoes she scuffs, throws water on him, then makes him tramp around in the mud. She basically tells him he's got to be like one of the people, he can't come down here And preach from up there he's got to look like he really is part of the workforce
1: yes she says just be they're not going to listen to you just because of your skin color they're going to listen to you if your story sounds like their story and the way you look makes it apparent your story probably isn't gonna sound like their story. And so she does. When she first lays eyes on Hampton, she makes him roll up his sleeves, she takes a ladle of water off the porch and pours it on his shoes and makes him stomp around in the dirt out and the dirt and the dust out in her yard. And while they're talking, she removes a watch that he's wearing, a fancy watch, and he doesn't even realize she's taken it off his hand. And she gives it to him and says, Put this in your pocket. That's one of my favorite scenes. That that's that's who Ella was. That's that's the fiery Ella that you'll hear about anecdotally from her family and from, from other, other people speaking about
0: the era. From the very beginning, we know that Ella is killed in the strike, but her story survives through her daughter.
1: Yes, uh, her daughter, Lily, who is writing a letter in the two, in the early part of the 2000s to her her great-nephew, Edwin. Her great-nephew, Edwin, asks her, who are we? You know, my father, who was Ella's son, my father never talked about his mom. He never talked about where he came from. He never talked about how we came to be here. And so Ella's oldest surviving daughter, Lily, decides to write a letter to her great-nephew Edwin about who they are, about who her mother was, about the importance of knowing where you come from and knowing what got you to where you are. and. It's true that the reader learns early on that Ella does not survive the strike. A simple Google search will tell anyone that. Um, she died in, in, on September 14, 1929. She was murdered. She was shot and killed after being turned around from a protest by a group of people who were part of the mill, part of Lore, part of the security force and a secret committee of citizens who were terrorizing strikers that summer. But I wanted the reader to know that. I wanted the reader to go into the novel knowing the tragedy awaits this woman. And I wanted every scene of her struggle, every interaction with her children, every hope she has to be weighted in the reader's heart by the realization that she doesn't survive this incredible undertaking.
0: Well, it is an incredible story. And as you've, you said when we first started out, you are Gastonia native. You didn't know the story your grandparents didn't know the story or they did not talk about it?
1: I imagine my grandparents did know the story. Um, they did not talk about it. Um, my parents, my mother born in, in 1945 and my dad in 1943, they did not know the story. They had never, they had never heard the name Mae Wiggins. And I didn't know the story until I went to graduate school in Louisiana in 2003 and a professor there asked me where I was from. And I'm used to saying, oh, I'm from a little town in between Charlotte and Nashville. But I took a chance and said, oh, I'm from Gastonia, North Carolina. And he said, oh, home of the Laurie Mill strike. And I just said, yeah, I'd never heard of it. So I, like any good graduate student, Googled it and found out that my hometown was the site of one of the most significant labor movements in American history that several times in the summer of 1929, Gastonia, the Loray Mill, and Ella Wiggins made headlines in every major newspaper around the world, and that the secret had been kept from me. It was not taught in the public schools. It was not taught in the public universities that I attended at UNC Asheville and UNC Greensboro. And I understood then, and I certainly understand it now, that when curriculum is made by school boards, they don't ask people like Ella Mae Wiggins what they want their children to learn.
0: Well, Wally, I hate it, but Alfred's giving me the wind up signal. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Uh,
1: just, it's been a pleasure to be with you.
0: All right. Well, Wally Cash, the author of The Last Ballad, it's been a pleasure having you on the journal today. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Wiley Cash is a native son of Gastonia, North Carolina. He grew up, had no clue about the LeRae Mill strike of 1929, didn't learn about it until he got to graduate school, and he reconstructed a story around the heroine of the strike, Ella May Wiggins, a single mother, and in this he captures the plight of those who toiled, especially women, in the cotton mills of the American South in the late 1920s. It's a story that I found riveting, and although this takes place in North Carolina, the setting, the conditions, the concerns were exactly the same here in South Carolina as testified by a committee of our General Assembly in 1929. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.